having had a 12-day trip there, visited three churches. We're very encouraged with all of them. Uh, thank you for your prayers for us. Um, uh, Marion did have a bad sort of upset one day, stomach upset, which is a bit tricky for her and, and for me as well. But we got through that and then got the other things done we wanted to do. I was particularly encouraged with the church in Narsik, where we've, I've been involved for some time. It's a, a city north of Mumbai, a Hindu centre actually, and quite reasonable size, million and a half people, but that's not big by Indian standard, but a city. But um, a, a really good church there, but they had two leaders quite... Um, big characters, the way I'd put it, in terms of our churches in, in India, Sydney and Inda, who are part of the sort of team that looks after other churches there. And they'd, Sydney used to lead the church, then Inda. They'd moved on, Inda, to a church plant. And two local guys took over, Rupesh, who wasn't a very much a local convert, um, and Maharati-speaking rather than English-speaking, was leading it. And, and, and I was there in February and handing over and praying for them and setting it in place. And I was a little nervous, if I'm honest, how they were doing, uh, and they were doing brilliantly. So last Sunday, I was preaching there at Grace Church Narsik to just over 200 people, lots of local people, not English-speaking particularly, quite poor people, getting saved, praying for people, just having a great time, but seeing God on them, seeing lots of things moving forward, it was very, very encouraging, feeling a fruitful time for that church. So lots of things to encourage us. Uh, and thank you for your prayers and your support as I go and do these things for the wider church. Um, it doesn't always work out like this. I think Steve might say more than you realise, but, but I seem to have been away a lot recently, and I'm in Madrid next week with our church plant with Kevin and Vanessa. I'll be there for the weekend uh, and then into Portugal before I come home. So uh, it is one of those seasons, but thank you for releasing and praying, and it is very fruitful. What I'm, I'm doing, I believe, is useful for just building the church. Not all preaching by any means. A lot of it's talking and helping uh, with growth and planning things. So we're going to now, I think most people are back, we're now going to look at our passage. Now, this is a strange experience this morning, strange and ultimately good. Um, I was given this passage some months ago, and indeed we planned the preaching some months ago. We're working through Revelation under the title God Wins. Revelation's a wonderful book, but it's a somewhat challenging book in some ways to preach from. And I've got chapters 17 and 18 today. And when I came back from India, the baptisms had moved to this morning, which is not, I think, how it was originally. And so I was thinking, right, this is not the most obvious passage for the baptisms. But then, and this is really quite sobering and challenging, the the events of the last 24, 48 hours in Paris bring a soberness to us all and actually bring more appropriateness than I might have realized to some of the themes we'll just touch on when we look at this this passage. We're obviously not going to read it all and we're not going to be able to dig into it in detail, but it is actually strangely appropriate in some ways. I hope you will get something out of it this morning. If you're visiting, I hope God will speak to you out of this. It's a vitally important subject, though in a very unusual format. Just to quickly say, you may know this, but I hope you don't mind me repeating if you do, because some of you may not. The Bible is really a library of books. It's a collection of books, of 66 different books. It's not really written as one book. It's like a a bookshelf or a library. And there's 40 different authors written over a period of 1,600 years, uh, three different original languages. And it's very different types of people writing it, uh, kings and shepherds and 
uh, intellectual people and people hardly educated, all involved. Uh, actually, there are so many different sorts of literature in there, several different sorts. There's letters, there's law, there's poetry, there's uh, what we call narrative, that's the history, just what people did, the stories of their lives. And there's also a thing, as wisdom literature, there's a thing called apocalyptic literature, which is in two or three places, Daniel and one or two other places, but most clearly in the book of Revelation. Now, that is not a contrived thing, apocalyptic literature. It's just a way of describing something which is vivid, which is uh, a visionary, which is powerful, which impacts you. And it's almost more like a drama. It's more like looking at a powerful painting or picture than it is just listening to a, a lore or a narrative story. And that, it's a vivid way of describing something that happens. And what happens is that the person concerned, John, the Apostle John, has an experience of God, and in the Spirit, he sees something. And he sees insights, revelations into how things are and how, how the world is and what the future holds. And he, he conveys them. Now, you might look at it and think, does that happen at all to anybody else? Yes, it does. You read the rest of the Bible. It happens to other people. Some, quite obviously, like Ezekiel. But actually, you can miss something. Think of Acts 10, if you know your Bible. Think of Peter sitting just before lunch, uh, praying uh, up on the roof in the, in the hot midday. And he says, it's like he went into a trance and suddenly he saw heaven opened. He saw a sheet coming down with all different animals on it. And a voice from heaven said, eat. Uh, kill them and eat. And he said, no, Lord, I don't do that. I don't eat, because uh, he's Jew. I don't eat those sort of animals. And it was unclean animals. And, he's, and God says, don't call something unclean that I've called clean. Eat it. And th- this happened three times, and the sheep went back up into heaven. And you think, well, what on earth is that about? And, and, and it was a powerful vision that very quickly became clear that God had shown him that actually his heart, God's heart, was for all people in the world and that Gentiles as well as Jews were going to receive the gospel. That was a way God in the Spirit communicated to him. Now in the chapters we're looking at, this little phrase in the Spirit comes out once, but it comes out several times in Revelation. And in Revelation 17, in the Spirit, John saw something. And he saw something that gave him an insight into the world as it is and as it will be towards the end of history. And it is in a very vivid and dramatic way, and we're certainly not going to read it all. If you had your Bibles open, and you don't worry if you don't, you'd see quite quickly that the theme of the two chapters is similar. There's just the headings in heavy type will tell you that. Things like lament over fallen Babylon, warning to escape Babylon's judgment, therefore threefold woe over Babylon, finality of Babylon's doom. So it's clearly what the theme is. It's about this Babylon and its doom. But It's put in a very vivid way, and I'm going to read you a few verses, and we're going to hear God in this this morning as we sit together, and the Holy Spirit is going to speak to us out of these passages. So we're going to read a few verses from 17. We're going to read the first five, and then I'm just going to draw two other verses, your attention to them, verse 15 and verse 18. So that's what we'll do, and then we'll read a few verses at the beginning of chapter 18. So just follow it or listen if you like. But remember, this is as much about an experience, a vivid picture, as it is just a logical argument. It's not that at all. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her, the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. 
There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names that had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold and precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. The name written on her forehead was a mystery. Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. Verse 15, then the angel said to me, the waters you saw where the prostitute sits are peoples and multitudes, nations and languages. Verse 18, the woman you saw is the great city that rules over the kings of the earth. Chapter 18, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She's become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries and the kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people so that you will not share in her sins, so you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. Give back to her she has given. Pay her back double for what she's done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her. Death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire. For mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Now, a little bit of introduction about all of the way we approach Revelation. Because I've only read you samples. If you read the rest of these chapters, these chapters are full of extraordinary pictures and symbols. And I think even as Christians, we can get a bit frustrated. For example... In this chapter, I just read you, the angel gives clear interpretation of two things, which is rather helpful for me this morning. Verse 15 and 18, he clearly tells John what those two things mean. That's useful, but he doesn't do that very often. So for loads of other things, we have not a clue given. And to our Western minds, to our logical thinking, this is quite irritating you think, well, if, it's, if you're going to tell us, tell us. Let's have a whole key. Let's have a whole index for what every jolly thing means. Yeah, excuse my language. That's a nice language, really. It wasn't too bad. But let, you can get frustrated, can't you? Well, let's know what it's all about then. Or if it's not that, just give us the picture. Just be like a painting on the wall and let us make of it what we make of it. What's this half and half thing? Well, actually, this is all about revelation, believe it or not, the title of the book. And it works like God shows you things. And some things you get and some things you don't get immediately and a lot later. And that's how it is. And we've really got to take a moment or two just to think this does not work the way a lot of our brains work and our things work. If I was to give you one example, there's a word mystery that we read in verse 5. And the word mystery comes up quite a lot in the Bible. For us, a mystery here or anywhere means a puzzle that you can work out by following clues and logic and try and find a solution to the puzzle. That's what we think of as mystery. In the Bible, it does not mean that. It means something that is utterly hidden, a truth you cannot know until it's revealed to you, 
and you either know it or you don't know it. And frankly, lots of Christians make that logical mistake. So they get to these things and they say, right, the ten horns, this is like you know, doing Sudoku or crossword puzzle, or it's like, it's like, you know, watching Agatha Christie. I'm going to try and find the clues. Now, a horn means that there, so ten horns means that there, means that there, means that there. That's how I solve the mystery. They don't work like that. Their Bible mysteries just aren't even meant to be like that. They are things you don't understand till they're revealed, then you get them and see them. And symbols in Revelation don't work on that logical basis either. That's, that's not wrong. It's just we're not the only way of looking at life. It, so symbols are not, here's the real thing, what it really means, and here's lots of pictures to illustrate it. It's not like that. Let me give you an example from uh, Revelation 21. Could you put it up? One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, thank you, this is about something different to what we're reading, but it will illustrate the point. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, full of the seven last plagues, came to me and said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit, there we are again, to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Now, I have done scores and scores of weddings. And I have never yet done this, and I doubt if I will. So it's all the family are here, they're all fine. The bride and the dad. Oh, dad's almost in tears. Beautiful bride comes. I say, okay, let's stand. Here comes the bride. Oh, she looks just like a city. She reminds me of Birmingham, actually. (laughs) No. I think, first of all, the dad would change to getting red and cross. The bride would probably then be in tears. The wedding would probably be ruined, and I might even be sacked. You know, I mean, what are you talking about? Here's the bride, there's the city. So what is it? It looks like a city, but what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about this. This is actually not even symbols and metaphors as we think of them. This is insight into truth. The church is the city of God. She is a community of citizens belonging to God. She is a city. The church is a bride. She is the beloved of Jesus. She is in eternal covenant relationship with Jesus. Actually, all brides, all marriages are but a picture of the great union of Christ and his church. It's not the other way around. Oh, that's a picture way I describe. No, we're the picture. That's the reality. That's why we shouldn't mess about with marriage, by the way. Because that is the reality, the relationship of Christ the church. She is the bride of Christ. She is dressed in white. She is beautiful. It is a city. You could add other ones. The church is a body. It wasn't like a body. No, no, it is a body. Christ is the head. His spirit is in each one of us. We are linked together organically. It operates like a body. It is a body. So what happens is you think, well, how does this work? Well, you're being revealed. Things are being revealed to you. The church is not a bunch of people who just believe in Jesus like any other religion. The church is the body of Christ. The church is God's city. The church is the bride of Christ. And that is how it works. And with that in our minds, we're going to quickly take a bit of time to look at the other side. Because we're not looking at the bride of Christ this morning. We're looking at Babylon. So let's talk up quickly three questions. What on earth is going on in these chapters 17 and 18? Well, let me remind you what we see. A great prostitute 
sits on a scarlet beast covered with blasphemous names by many waters. We're told the waters are peoples, nations, multitudes, and languages. We're told the woman is the great city Babylon that rules over the kings of the earth. The beast, we're told, comes from the abyss, from hell itself. Now, actually, all of this is about one thing, really. Just like the bride and the city and the body are about one thing, the church. All of this is about this world system of human beings, men and women, organized apart from God and in defiance towards God. And it's revealed to John that behind them, there is demonic power. They ride on demonic power. That the kingdoms of this world are tangled up with this anti-God, beautiful, attractive, seductive, dangerous thing that rides on a hideous beast. It's vivid, it's swirling symbols, crazy pictures, but actually it's compelling, it's accurate, it's fundamental, and in a strange sort of way, it makes sense. It's not like, oh, what on earth is this about? There's this thing that's like, bang, right in your face, you think, This is how it is. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. There have been thousands of Babylons. And yet behind it all, there is a Babylon. This, this, the world system, apart from God, organized in defiance of God, is like a beautiful courtesan, a seductress. It attracts. It's dripping with gold and pearls. This is no ugly creature. But it's actually a false, it's a prostitute, it's not a bride, like the bride of Christ. There is a, there, there is a, there's a falseness about it, there's a danger in it, there's a, a, there's a destruction in it. She has this cup, which is an addictive mix, which makes people drunk. And people love it, and are drawn in, and are addicted by it. And this prostitute, this city, hates the people of God. And is in, always in antagonism to that. Unless you are part of the heavenly Jerusalem, the bride of Christ, this is where we all sit under somehow this regime of the great prostitute, Babylon. Babylon's power and luxury represent everything. We understand it. The rampant materialism, the lust for sensual pleasure, the rejection of God's values, things that characterize godless society in a myriad different ways. It's not just one way. There's a relentless pursuit of wealth and power and pleasure. There's, where possible, there's a ruthless exercise of power in a political, raw sense. And if you read the rest of 17, and we won't even think of doing it this morning because of time, you'll see that various of these beasts rise and fall. And you think, what's all this about? And people try and do this puzzle thing. It's actually like it comes and goes in history. The Babylonian thing, sometimes it's more obvious than others. I would argue some of the hideous evil we see around comes and goes. You know, it was more obvious perhaps in the 1940s with the fascism and Nazism. It got quite obvious at Pol Pot. It's not a political, it could be either side of the spectrum. More obvious with, a, with certain things, you know, Mao Zedong or Stalin. Today, I would argue, ISIS might. There are things that emerge that are obvious, but there's a coming and going, but behind it all, the same system is working until the end. The world system works across the spectrum of human uh, uh, politics and things. And 
the scary but true thing is, behind these movements of men and women and rising of dictators and falling down and totalitarian regimes, there is demonic power. They ride on a beast. And that is a truth. That isn't like, oh, well, that's a nice picture. Like, we've looked at a nice one, the bride of Christ. Now we're talking to the unnice. It's a truth. It's how it is. There is demonic power behind much that goes on in our world. I have no question that there's demonic influence on ISIS and IS. Absolutely no doubt in my mind. I've got no doubt in my mind that Hitler and Nazi Germany, there were huge demonic forces involved. But actually they're involved a lot wider than that, including things sometimes in our own culture. And this beast works on and uses, carries this woman with her desire for sensuality and all the abominable things and drives her in an anti-God thing, in an anti-Jesus thing, in an anti-the-people-of-God uh, thing. And so when we get to chapter 18, there's another reference to the demonic about demons infesting Babylon. But actually in re- chapter 18, we get a slightly more recognizable human side of what goes on in the world. We get references to economic sins where, where, where merchants exploit sinful pleasures that people seek and make a lot of money out of them, a bit like drug dealers do, but it happens at a lot more mild level than that. We see businesses and governments based on greed and money and power and using people like slaves. So, uh, for example, we didn't read it, uh, Verse 13 in chapter 18, 13b, human beings sold as slaves. So the whole system exploits people and exploits their weakness. The systems of this world do that. As I say, it's not one political thing. You can look at it. It rises and falls regularly. Look at the banking scandals we've watched ourselves. The incredible way that that individuals who are very bright but encouraged to be selfish and use everything for their own, can, can play havoc with the whole world economy. Actually, millions of people have suffered because of people's greed in the last 10 to 15 years. Huge numbers, multiple millions have suffered because people twisted around LIBOR and tried to make money. And then that can happen again and again and again. Multinational corporations, what's Volkswagen doing? Fiddling. The whole thing is calculated to make money. Now these, so so the, the whole Babylon system is like that all the time. The spirit of Babylon is still very alive and well. And it keeps resurfacing in different ways. It's how things often are in our world. And usually there is an anti-God angle that comes to the surface. They hate the people of God. They hate Jesus. Often it's not even anti-religion. It's specifically anti-Jesus, anti-Christian, anti-the people of God. Because that is the spirit of Babylon. Babylon is this mixture of normal things driven by demonic influence. There's an arrogance. I sit as queen. I will never mourn. You know, we're the, you can't shake us. We're the real deal. And uh, no, there's a sense of the church being despised and ignored. So let's move from that to the next question. From what on earth is going on to how will it all end? Because as Leon Morris says, the subject of these chapters is not the apparent triumph of evil, but its final and complete overthrow. That's really what these chapters are about. You see, the process of Babylon and its downfall is a sort of repeating one through history. There have been thousands of Babylons. The one that probably John would be most aware of when he was writing this was, of course, Rome, the Roman Empire and all that was going on. This is not just about Rome. Rome was that manifestation of it. 
And that one has crumbled and fallen. But the sense that comes through here is that there's going to be, and I believe this is true actually, a last climatic collapse of Babylon. That the Babylons, it's a bit like there's antichrist spirit in the world, but there will be an antichrist. That the Babylons of the past, and some of them I've even mentioned, we can observe them around us, they are just part of this sort of bubbling turmoil of the world. But there will be a climactic time when Babylon will finally be brought to an end by God and by his Lamb, Jesus Christ. It's been shown to John that what happens with Babylon happens all the time and will ultimately happen in an extreme way. It's not something we read, but in verses 15 to 18 of 17, it's clear that this is what happens. Babylon ultimately destroys itself. What happens is that the satanic allegiances disintegrate and they begin to fight each other and undermine each other. And actually, evil always operates like this. It will happen to ISIS. It always happens. That in the end, the destructive nature of what it is means that it turns on each other and itself and its own adherents. And unholy alliances are always uneasy alliances. They always, always are. Because each partner is actually after its own ends. Each partner is suspicious of the other one. That's what literally happens here. That Babylon, in the end, destroys itself. The beast and, 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 the, and, and the prostitute, as it were, begin to, to fight each other. And leave. And it's all in verses 15, 16, 17. You can read it sometime if you want to. Hate the prostitute, bring her to ruin, leave her naked. But it's all internal. But what this says, what this book says, what Revelation says is... God is in control of the whole situation. And actually, he knows this is going to happen. And in fact, he uses it. So the forces of evil, when they turn on one another, actually, it's the work of God to bring judgment on these forces. As they plan and intrigue and hate, they are operating totally out of their own choice. They are being evil and they are rightly judged for it. And yet, over it all... God uses it to undermine this hideous force. And in the end, that will be finally concluded and Babylon will collapse once and for all. So I think, I couldn't resist saying this, how will the world end? Interesting, isn't it? There's quite a lot of apocalyptic movies been about, aren't there, over about the last 10, 15, perhaps 20 more years, 20, 30 years. You could probably name quite a lot of apocalyptic movies. Will it end with an ecological disaster? Will it end with huge tsunamis and earthquakes or meteorite strike? What about a widespread contagious virus that you can't deal with that kills people off? A massive destructive war which leaves the world desolate. A complete meltdown of the world's economy and associated famines and social disorder. Well, actually, none of those things are that fanciful. You can actually imagine any or all of them happening. It's not unrealistic. The big story from Revelation is that it's nearer to the truth than you think. There is a sense in which the world probably will end in some climactic, perfect storm of judgment of all of these forces and seeds that are already in our world coming together in a last perfect storm of judgment. It's good news, isn't it? 
challenging for you this morning. It's the truth. I'm not going to take edge from it. It will not all just go on as it is. It will not all just evolve and one day in billions of years' time the sun might snuff us out, but I don't care. No, this is not about nature. It's about human beings. This is about the prostitute and the beast. And actually, they are very active in human hearts and in human society. This is about sin and Satan. And actually, these seeds always keep surfacing and surfacing. And in the end, they will collapse the thing under the judging eye of God. You know, men and women do sense this. That's why we fight and try and fight. Well, we don't want, you know, to destroy the planet. No, I respect that. Ecological disasters. We don't want ecological disasters. But I'm going to give you a little insight from heaven, from Hebrews 1, not from Revelation. Let's just read it quickly. In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, And the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. For me, this is one of the most clear and powerful indications of what I think we can ultimately expect in this world. It's this. God made it, and God has the last call on what happens to it. God is over and above creation. He created things ex nihilo, out of nothing. He didn't, he wasn't created himself. He was like, well, who created God? Of course they didn't. God, nobody created God. God is the creator of everything else. He started it and he will finish it. He's the uncreated one. And he was there before anything was and he'll be there afterwards. These verses tell us that the earth and the heavens, listen to this picture because it's so accurate, will wear out like an old garment. That's what's going to happen. They're going to wear out like an old garment and God's going to fold them up, discard them and create a new one. And actually, this poor old world looks like that. I know we sit in a comfortable place, but it looks like that. And we all know this. It's got holes coming in it all over it. Holes in the ozone layer, holes in other things. It's like a worn out garment. It's becoming dirty and threadbare. Now, it's not wrong to try and stop the process. It's not wrong to try and steward the natural resources of the world, to try and protect the environment, protect animals. I don't think that's wrong at all. But I'm going to say to you, sadly, I believe it's a totally losing battle. It doesn't mean I don't. I recycle my plastic cups like you do. And I try, I mean, I'd like to have clean air like you would. But actually, I'll tell you why it's a losing battle, and this is the challenging thing, because of the prostitute and the beast. Because of human sin and demonic influence. Because human beings, if they don't meet Jesus and get their hearts changed, just cannot have enough virtue in themselves to reverse it. Our own pride, our own greed, our own uncertainty, our own problems in our own selves keep undoing it. Ivory poaching, Volkswagen scandal the stuff I've already referred to, where people discard the rules and everything else. You go to Mumbai and just go to any city in the world and just see the vehicles. Everybody wants something. Everybody wants one. People, the whole culture in huge parts of our world, huge parts, is totally black bribery. Huge parts. Huge parts that are ten times bigger than Europe. And we're not brilliant. We are, we are very corrupt ourselves, like the Volkswagen Steiner thing. But, you know, in other words, you can get anything by paying for it. The idea that somehow we're going to have a few rules and put the world right is ludicrous. 
because the beast and the demon are at work everywhere. Now, we can try, and let's take war. Who wants war? No one wants it. I want peace. I want to work for peace. But you can't stop it. It's like a festering pus. It comes up again and again and again. It's in people. It's greed. It's racism. It's selfishness. It's land grabbing. It's political power. It's whatever you want to call it. And when one goes down, another one comes up. Of course, I don't mean, I don't mean to give up. I, I want peace. I want clean air. I don't want loads of pollutants in my water or my air. I get it. I don't want elephants killed for their ivory. What a stupid waste of an elephant's life. What are we doing? I understand all that, but I'm telling you from heaven, we ain't going to stop it by our own effort. Because there's more at work than you understand. There's the prostitute in all her greed, and everybody wants their part. Everybody wants their bit. Everybody wants their big, shiny car. They all want it in India. Why shouldn't they have it in India? We've had it for 50 years. Why shouldn't they have a car? Why shouldn't every one of the one billion people in India and the one and a half billion in China have a car like you've got a car? Why should you have a car and they shouldn't? And how's that going to deal with the planet? But you tell them you can't, they can't have a car. They say, well, don't you have your car? You've had yours for 50 years. Now you chuck your car away and walk and we'll have a car. Because you can't solve it except for the gospel. The gospel can help. But I tell you, there's a deeper thing here. The only solution is when Jesus comes back and God changes the whole thing. And John saw this is going to go on and on until the big moment when God brings it to an end. And I'm telling you big picture stuff this morning. You may not all like it, but I tell you that is how it is. And so we come to our last question. I'm going to have to skip some of my slides. I hope that, is it Josh, keeps, helps me. Whose side are you on is the last question. It's a very important question. Because in this whole thing in Revelation, I've hinted at it, I hope you've got it really, there are basically two cities really. There's the city of Babylon and there's the city of Zion. Sometimes it's put as two women, the great prostitute and the bride of Christ. The first one, Babylon, the great prostitute, looks very powerful and alluring, but it will collapse and be destroyed. God's calling time on it. The second one, Zion and the bride of Christ, appear weak, oppressed, often destroyed almost by the first one. But that second one will one day eternally live with Christ and the whole world will be the dwelling place of God. The whole world will be Jerusalem. The the whole new heavens and new earth. And we have to be on the winning side right now, which means the side of the bride and Zion. Now, how do we get from the first to the second? That's Babylon to Zion. Well, I could look at many things. I'm just going to use a passage in Colossians, which uses the terminology of kingdom, which I find helpful. This is one of the ways you could describe what it is to be a Christian. And giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. Well done, Josh. You're on your metal today. Well done. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. I cannot unpack this for you this morning, but this is briefly one of the ways you could describe what it is to become a Christian. When you put faith in Jesus... You are qualified, not by your merits, 
because you don't deserve it. But by the grace of God, you become qualified to join God's kingdom of light and love, to be rescued from the dominion of darkness, which is really another way of talking about Babylon, and brought into the kingdom of the sunny loves through redemption and forgiveness of sins. You see, when you put faith in Jesus, whoever you are, from whatever background, you transfer from one city to another, from being a citizen of Babylon to being a citizen of Zion, God's people. And that means your names are written in God's book. And I'm really going to have to leave this one for a fortnight's time when I, thankfully I've got a chance to unpack this a little bit. But there's all through Revelation, there's this book, the book of the Lamb, which is not only mentioned in Revelation. Moses mentions it, Jesus mentions it, Paul mentions it, Daniel mentions it. The book, and we're going to look at that in two weeks a little bit. And actually what it is, is a record of those who belong to Zion. It's not based on race, it's not based on sex, gender, background, uh, anything other than are you a follower of the Lamb? Are you washed in the blood of Jesus? Have you put faith in Jesus? Is he your Lord and Savior? Just like those three who demonstrated this morning. Their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. But that's the record of the citizens of heaven. That's the record of the citizens of Zion. And you come into Zion, God's city, when you put faith in Jesus. Now, Revelation 18 verse 4 says to people who follow Jesus, to the citizens of Zion, this, come out of her, my people. That call, which goes again all through the Bible, it's seven or eight times in the New Testament and several times in the Old Testament, is to God's people to not be mixed up with Babylon. And this is my last couple of point, last point, a few minutes, very important. So don't, don't lose it. Because this is the application and challenge for us really. Over this passage is this message. There are two massive cities. One is very obvious and very attractive and alluring. It's the Babylon we live amongst. You, when you follow Jesus, are taken out of that city, rescued from it with all its destruction that's coming and all its hideous ways, and you're brought into the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's Son of light and love. But as yet, you are not with Jesus in heaven, and Jesus hasn't yet come back. So you have to live with attention. You are surrounded by Babylon, but you're not of Babylon. As Jesus put it, you are in the world, but not of the world. So as Christians, we have to learn, how does this work? I live in Babylon, but I don't belong to Babylon. You are, every one of you sitting in front of me, have this dilemma if you're a follower of Christ. You live in Babylon, but you belong to Jerusalem. You're part of the beautiful white bride of Christ, but you're surrounded by the wealth and allure and seduction of the great prostitute. All around you. Don't think down, think up. Think of a courtesan. Think of a beautiful and uh, wealthy, attractive figure. And so you, how do you live with this? How do you live with it? Well, there's a prophetic call. Don't get mixed up in the pleasure-crazed, power-driven value system. Come out of the value system. Don't get mixed up pleasure-seeking, power-seeking. Don't do it. Stand back from it. And we need to hear that call. We constantly need to be aware we mustn't align ourselves with the systems and values of this world. Even though we're in it, we're not of it. That means we have to walk close to Jesus. We have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. 
And we have to be watchful about the enemy of our souls because the beast sniffs around us as well. Yeah, he works. The demonic forces work in the big things and they work on the little things. You can see that too. People were demonized when Jesus was on, on, on earth. And so we have to be careful to keep clear of the things that entangle us and destroy us. How do we do that? Well, I'll give you a few very quick, just as we finish. Not even going to preach them, just list them. You, we all need to keep in mind that everything ultimately belongs to God. It's not our world, it's his world. Even your breath belongs to God. We need to remember this world is going to pass away. And everything we think so valuable and so important, the cars and everything else, will just go to dust one day. They are temporary. We are but stewards of them. We need to therefore keep our eyes on Jesus, the Lamb of God, the author and finisher of our faith. Christian brothers and sisters, we need to stay thankful for everything we've got. Be thankful for everything. Thankful you've got a roof over your head. Thank you you've got a job. Thank you if you've got one. Thank you you've got anything worth having, like food and water and life and sustenance. Be thankful and grateful. It's not automatic. And any, any, any of your observation of the world will tell you that. Be generous. Don't hold it all. Hold it with an open hand. Don't hold it with a clenched fist. It's mine. That's the spirit of Babylon. The spirit of Zion is an open hand, generosity. Avoid pride in your own successes. I'm this. That's the spirit of Babylon. I'm not a widow. Nothing will ever happen to me. Avoid that. Be humble. Be aware of the grace of God. Do what is right, whatever the cost. Babylon always wants you to compromise. Compromise with my ways. Come on. Come on. Fiddle the books. Come on. A little bit of uh, sexual sin on the side. Come on. Come in. Allure you in. No, I'm not going to compromise with Babylon. I'm not going to compromise with God's word and God's will. Babylon and Jerusalem are at war. And there will be no peace until one of them is destroyed. But there is no doubt which one will ultimately be destroyed. Which one is it? It's Babylon. The ultimate outcome is certain because God wins. When that happens, in Revelation 18.20, we find all heaven, including the people of God, rejoicing that Babylon has come to an end. I think that's quite challenging because I wonder if some of us will be rejoicing. We might have a little sneaking, oh. But actually, there is no sitting on the fence, brothers and sisters. It should be clear now which side we're on and where our allegiances lie. We are not on the side of Babylon system. It, I can emphasize this is not one type of world system. It's not one politics. I said it several times. It's a whole system. It comes and goes in different shapes and sizes repeatedly. That's the whole point of this vision. But we don't belong in that way to any of it. We belong to this heavenly city and to the Lamb. Amen? And so some come, some go, some rise, some fall. But we don't hate anybody, but we love Jesus. And that makes us march to a totally different tune to those around us. Let's have the band up, please.